Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Ella Review of Books. I'm your host, LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, LARB's Managing Editor, Medea Ocha. Hi, Kate. Hey, Medea. How's it going? Great. We are here to introduce our Chris <laughs> Krause interview. <laughs> yes, that's what we are here to introduce. Yeah, we, we, we spoke with Chris Krause about her new collection of essays and dispatches, cultural dispatches called Social Practices. Tell me about your relationship to Chris Krause. I have a long one. You have a long one? Not I, personal, just uh, in terms of my relationship to her work. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess mine is fairly long. I think, I'm sure I read I Love Dick about 10 years ago, maybe longer. And then I also went to CalArts, so I felt her, her presence, presence there <laughs> very strongly because I Love Dick, of course, was based off her relationship or lack of a relationship with Dick Hebbage, who used to run um, the critical studies program at CalArts. So she right. so she was known, and I loved the book when I first read it, and I've grown to really appreciate her art criticism as well. That she's not a conventional art critic. She's more of a personal kind of discursive art critic who doesn't always focus. She's not an art historian, but I think she sees a larger picture at work, and, and that's kind of more interesting to read a lot of the time than just pure art criticism. I agree. Let's hear your relationship with her. Well, I used to teach I Love Dick. And when I was teaching it at UCLA, one of my proudest moments as a teacher was when a lacrosse bro, who's not listening to this, so he doesn't know that I'm talking about him. You might not be Um, sure, but... (laughs) And I had many lacrosse bros, so hi, guys. A lacrosse bro came to office hours and wanted to talk about I Love Dick. And he said that he gasped when you read the end. Uh-huh. And I was so proud and just so excited for him. And I just love the idea of this lacrosse bro gasping when he read the sort of betrayal that happens at the end of I Love Dick. That's not giving anything away. All right. So should we get to our conversation with Chris? Yes, that'd be great. Okay, let's do it. We're excited to have writer, filmmaker, critic, and publisher Chris Krause with us in the studio today. Chris is the author of Torpor, Aliens and Anorexia, Summer of Hate, and I Love Dick, a novel told in a series of raw and beautiful letters written to an elusive lover that was adapted by Jill Soloway for a TV series produced by Amazon Studios in 2017. Chris is also the author of After Kathy Acker, a gripping and intimate portrait of the radical American writer of the same name, which was published last year. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, Social Practices, a collection of essays and interviews that sweep across the space and time of contemporary literature and art with a particular focus on transformations within Los Angeles as a site of aesthetic possibility and sometimes disappointment. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hi, thanks, Tarek. So, Chris, for any listeners who aren't familiar with the term, I was wondering if you could explain to us what social practices and why you think it's so prevalent right now in the art world. Oh, yeah, social practices. I use that as the title of my book. I've always been a little wary of that word of, you know, describing a genre of art, or I've been wary of the genre that that word is used to describe. (laughs) You know, in the introduction, I try and kind of make a joke out of it and say, well, you know, really, 
all art involves a social practice. It's always transactional between the artist and the viewer and all the other parties involved. So, I mean, I guess a couple of the projects that I describe in the book would fall under the banner of social practice in a way. Things like Rolling Jubilee, things that are sort of on the margins or on the boundaries of the art world in that they're not creating saleable objects, they're creating events, they're creating situations. As far as this new genre that people go to school to get an MFA in (laughs) and really involves like, you know, tutoring English or making a landscape garden, that just seems crazy to me. Right. I feel like the people who are doing that work are being a bit misled by art schools and should be maybe considering getting professional licenses in things like teaching and landscape architecture. Well, right. You have an example in the book of someone who works on a garden, on some acreage with their librarian partner. I forget the entire scope of the project, but it seems like And as you point out, the partner was the one who was actually able to make a living while there. The artist was just, I can't remember exactly the specifics of it, but do you know what I'm talking about? I think so, yeah. That person, they had an MFA, which they didn't exactly end up using, except they were using it by making their social practice. I feel like, you know, a lot of the reason that people kind of migrate into the art world and pursue these things that are now called social practices are because they're just accorded no respect and no status in the larger world. You know, there's so many people working in the art world, you know, on quote-unquote pedagogy Mm. as a social practice. (laughs) And it's because to be a school teacher is like, you know, they make half the salary of a police officer. It's a completely debased and degraded occupation. And I think it's tragic that, People have to find legitimacy and glamour for committed and innovative work through the art world rather than through what the thing really is. Along those same lines, Chris, I'm wondering about a moment late in one of the essays where you talk about the increasingly hegemonic character of the culture industry today, which I think we can also see in some ways is reflective of the MFAization of art. What I'm wondering is, do you think it's possible to resist that increasing hegemony of the culture industry? And what would that resistance look like? Well, I mean, it's not conditional. I mean, it already exists and we just need to open our eyes and move around to see it. I'm trying to think of a good example right now in Los Angeles. Sadly, LA the L.A. that exists now is a lot like the New York that I left in the mid-90s. L.A. is not such a wide-open field anymore, but there are still a number of really innovative and artist-run projects like Human Resources in Mm. Chinatown and Poetic Research Bureau, I think, also in Chinatown. I don't know. I'll think of more as we go on. But in a couple of weeks, I'm going to visit in the U.K., an alternative MFA program, and people have just started this of their own desire. 
and I think the students aren't paying tuition. Actually, it's a bit like the Mountain School in Los Angeles that was started years ago. That's an ongoing Los Angeles project as was public school. So people are always coming up with ideas in major cities and often in smaller cities. Something that I thought was interesting about your book, there's an essay where you really thoroughly lay out the history or the more recent history of the contemporary art world in Los Angeles and how it has become sort of similar to the New York that you left. I left New York for LA in the mid 90s. Right. And could you tell our listeners a little bit about how you have understood the progression of the LA art world since then? Well, Yes, a lot more people have moved to L.A. You know, that remark that the new the guy that they hired at MoCA, the remark that he made that, you know, L.A. is becoming the new Berlin. <laughs> yeah. That was so off base and about two decades too late. <laughs> that was what happened in the mid-90s. You know, people like Richard Hertz and his MFA program at Art Center, it was, you know, the mid-90s was an incredible incubator of new art with people like Mike Kelly around and teaching. And as more people have moved here and, you know, other urban issues like the redevelopment of the quote-unquote arts district mm. and mega galleries like Hauser and Wirth opening up downtown, you know, the thing that people never, ever thought would happen, the gentrification of downtown it happened so quickly. I mean, for years, people were living for practically nothing in lofts and developers were trying and trying to get this to kick in. And then, boom, it was there and there was no room for the artists anymore. So it's definitely, yeah, the conditions are a lot more New York-like. I mean, people moving here now from New York are saying, oh my God, it's just as bad as New York. So that makes a very different kind of art environment than the one that we were lucky enough to experience in the mid-90s where you could quit your job at lunch and get another job two days later. You know, you could leave your apartment and find a better one next week. It's the same anxiety, the same struggle that people associate with New York. Just to follow up on that a little bit more, can you talk about what makes a great, fertile environment for path-breaking art? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> my, personal, my personal taste, of course, is always for something a little slow, shabby, and sleepy mm. with a lot of pockets for people to do interesting things. That's not the ultimate. Of course, there's a lot of other different models available. But I remember when I moved here, and this was, I really didn't know that much about visual art, you know, in the 80s, when I lived in New York, visual art so much wasn't a thing. The thing was to be in a band. Not right. that I ever was. Right. But, I mean, the default thing was, like, I'm in a band. Then it became the default thing became, you know, I'm an artist. <laughs> but I hadn't quite caught up with that. I really didn't know a lot about art history and tradition. But moving here in, I don't know, like, 95, I remember things like Dave Mueller's three-day weekend and mm. Andrea Bowers and Sam Durant did this incredible thing where they booked out a motel. They booked out all the rooms in some sleazy Eagle Rock motel for a long weekend, and they did a pop-up show there. And there was another pop-up show in a kind of beauty salon, you know, somewhere in maybe Highland Park. 
all of these things were possible because there were people around and plenty of space. There was no great premium on space and people didn't have to work 80 hours a week to support themselves. So there was also free time. And how did you start writing about art? Well, I started writing about art in I Love Dick. Right. I Love Dick was written in real time. And I really did have a crush on this person named Dick. And I really did want to impress him. So after I got through the first round of like, I love you, you're so great. I have such a crush on you. Well, I wanted to keep writing, but you can't say that over and over again. You can't even do it when you're 14, let alone 38. So I thought I better find some other things to write about. And he, the recipient of the letters, was a cultural critic who often wrote about art. So I thought, okay, I'll go to some art shows. And I remember going to the Eleanor Anton show with a notebook thinking I would write about it to Dick. So I took all these notes and I really thought about it. I didn't know that much about the history of Anton's work or the context of it, but I was really moved by the show. And I did that several other times across the book. I did the same thing with the R.B. Kataj show. It was a big retrospective of his work at the Met. And I, don't know, I stood outside the museum, smoked a joint, took up my notebook and wrote down everything that I saw. And that was kind of my self-taught introduction to writing about art. <laughs> yeah. But when I moved to L.A., it was actually because I'm kind of extraordinarily, I was offered a job at Art Center in the MFA program teaching writing, although I had yet to publish a book and I didn't have a degree in writing. You know, it was just a fluke. It was a lot easier then. But there was this expectation once I was there, if I was teaching in the MFA program, I must know something about art. So artists would start inviting me to come around and do studio visits and talk about their work. So I really picked it up as I went along. And maybe because I was coming from a pretty self-schooled place, My self-schooling entailed a lot about feeding back what I saw, you know? You do that in a studio visit. You know, a studio visit is such a strange situation. It's like a therapy session. You go in and the artist has a body of work and they want you to look at the work. And what happens between the two of you in that hour is completely open and up for grabs. But one of the things I think that's, the artist wants and that's the most useful for you to offer the artist is if you can verbalize what you see in the work. Not many people can do that. It seems like such a simple thing and yet a lot of traditional high art criticism avoids doing that. You know, there's a lot of theoretical commentary and a lot of contextual commentary but not so much commentary on What is the experience of viewing the work? What do you actually see? So I try and do that. I was writing for Welfare Art in America, and at that time they were very old-fashioned. They've probably changed by now, but their style used to be that you had to describe the work. I mean, really describe it. You know, this is a red, this is a blue, this is, you know, there's a triangle on the top left of the frame. It's a really difficult thing to describe anything visual in words. So that was like a great learning exercise. And actually one that I like to repeat when I teach, the challenge of actually accurately describing a thing so that other people can see it. It's not as easy as you think. No, it's so hard. And it can also be, I think you 
really accurately point out that there's kind of a fashion right now in art texts of writing around an artist's work and not really addressing it, which I'd like to talk a little bit more about because I think it is a form maybe of sometimes lending value to something in a certain way. But also I think because it's so difficult to write well and compellingly straightforwardly about art that it seems like people think it's better just to avoid it at this point, you know, because it can be so dry. So to make that kind of visual language really pop and spark from the page is very hard. It's true. It's true. I mean, contemporary art is referential. So you have to include that, of course, because it almost always is referential. But when the discourse around it is purely referential, it's very difficult. You kind of miss what is actually there in front of your face. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Chris Krause about her new essay collection, Social Practices. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're very pleased to have back in the studio with us today Kwame Anthony Apia, philosopher and cultural critic and author most recently of The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity, who has a book recommendation for us. So Kwame, what book are you recommending? Well, I just spent most of the year reading 171 novels with four other people for the Booker Prize, and so I think it would be wrong. What a slacker. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I can tell you that of those 171, <laughs> the, the one that we uh, ended up favoring is a great book. It's by Anna Burns, who's a writer from Northern Ireland, actually the first mm. uh, writer from Northern Ireland to win the Booker Prize. It's called Milkman which is actually the name or the, the designation of two characters in the book. But it's in the voice of a woman from Northern Ireland. And the best way to appreciate the book is just to read it out to yourself out mm. loud because you've got this wonderful voice yeah. uh, of this amazing young woman. She's out of place in her community because she's very um, literary. She wanders around reading. Mm. And, and one of the complaints of her community about her is that she engages in the terrible activity of walking while reading, <laughs> which people... people <laughs> guilty as charged. Guilty as yeah. charged. So that's the sort of beautiful positive side of it but it's also a novel about how in the troubles in Northern Ireland a man could use mm. his position in one of the paramilitary groups to essentially engage in sexual harassment of this one young woman to force her to attend to him to try and force his sexual attentions on her because he has power in the community that he's that's nothing to do with a gender it's it's a power to do with with the struggles of the community the political struggles of the community but he's abusing it mm. to abuse her and, and her modes of resistance and, and how she escapes and so on is, is part of the story. And the other thing I think that's wonderfully evoked in the novel is the terrible power, negative power that gossip and rumor can have in a community. She's mm. not having an affair with him, but everybody's talking about her as if she is. And that's, of course, making it harder and harder for her to resist him. And then the rumor and, and gossip, even from her own family, whom she's told she's not having this relationship, is part of what traps her. No novel is about any one thing. No novel is about any three things. But it's a novel in which at least those three issues are beautifully explored in this powerful and completely recognizable language, in the, recognizable in the sense that you see nobody's ever written like this before. Mm. Thank you so much. That sounds wonderful. Can you give us the title and the author one more okay. time? Okay. It's Anna Burns, Milkman. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Kwame Anthony Apia author of The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Chris Krauss, author of Social Practices. Chris, I'm wondering if we can talk about some of the work that you did with Native Agents, the series in Semiotext. In one of your essays in this book, you talk about how you and the other editors share an interest in a particular strain of queer writers who open up what you guys call new modes or models for living. And these would be writers like Burroughs, Foucault, Michel T., Abdullah Taia, Wojnarowicz, and Hélène de Girardi. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you think gets opened up in queer writing or art and why you see those alternative modes of living as so vital? Yeah. Well, and okay, there's three of us and we're equally involved. Hedy Alcalti and Silver Lotringer and I work on all of the imprints together. Although mm-hmm. I must say that Hedy has been the most responsible for bringing in the part of the list that you're describing. Okay. Um, the, the tradition of queer writers and the contemporary writers like Abdella. But I think a thing that we share, I mean, if you look at it, all of the work is narrative. It's not necessarily first person. It's all narrative, but it's also utopian. It's all utopian in some big picture kind of way. Right. Not that they're all like novels about utopia, but there's something about the writer's sensibility that proposes kind of a better place that we can inhabit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I wonder, though, I guess the question for me is, how do those different modes of living open up those utopian possibilities, right? Is there something about their way of disordering how we normally experience life that provides an opening for a kind of like Jose Munoz-style utopia? Yeah, well, I mean, there's two parts of it, right? We have another series called Active Agents, where we're publishing theoretical and activist texts. Mm -hmm. And those would speak to that question, because theory and activism are by nature programmatic. They're saying this, 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 and not that. Um, Fiction isn't really programmatic. You know, fiction does that more surreptitiously. Fiction kind of creates the world of the book and seduces you into it. I guess what I'm saying is the world of the book that's created by the novels that we publish in Native Agents, Mm -hmm. there's something very utopian about that world and something very open. Not that we're talking about, you know, polyamory versus monogamy or live in this kind of house or that kind of house or the city or the country, but there's an openness and a receptivity to it and a willingness to consider possibilities, I think that runs throughout the list. I, you know, the one thing you won't find on our list is a book about, like, my divorce. <laughs> Certainly not by a straight white man, but not by a woman either. I mean, really not by anybody. Literary fiction, so much of it now describes a small domestic realm, mm. you know, either in Brooklyn or the Upper West Side of New York or in, you know, Echo Park or the west side of Los Angeles. It's very, very circumscribed and, you know, these kind of dramas of upper middle class life. 
We don't do that. The books that we publish are definitely narrative, but they describe other situations. You know, and within those situations, if the writer doesn't directly address the world outside, something of the world outside kind of breathes through it. I'm thinking of oh, recent books that we published, definitely all of Abdelatiya's work, mm. which is so incredible. The, the collection of short stories, um, Another Morocco. Did yeah. you read that book? We, we, had, inter- we talked to him on the show. We interviewed him, yeah. Yeah, it's so great because... I don't know, maybe you've read the books of, you know, the Paul Bowles, Mohammed Rabbit um, collaborations of traditional Moroccan tales. There's something of traditional Moroccan storytelling in how Abdella makes a story. And yet they're not traditional at all. They're extremely contemporary. Speaking of utopia, to go back to utopia for a second, I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the Chance Festival, which sounded like a utopia if there ever was one. A weekend. <laughs> it kind of was. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Tell us we, about it. it. It was co produced by Art Center and Semiotext in the French Cultural Service. And we invited the philosopher Jean Baudrillard, the philosopher of chance, to come and be the headliner at what we described as a philosophy rave. It was chance three days in the desert. Mm-hmm. And we had DJ Spooky and uh, the you know, techno gender theorist uh, Sandy Stone and the poet Diane DePrima. We had all kinds of people doing this show that ran. We basically took over the casino at Prim at Whiskey Pete's Casino in Prim Nevada and ran the show for like three days in their black box theater. And people came from all over North America and Europe as well. It was. It became a huge thing just on the very dawn of the internet. So like it was partly online. Some people, there was, I don't know, there was a chat group or something. Some people learned about it online, other people through word of mouth. But like people actually came and camped out around the casino in order to attend. It was really a great thing. Uh, Mike uh, Kelly yeah. was involved. He put a band together. Mike Kelly's chance band was kind of the backup for Baudrillard giving a lecture on chance. It was really brilliant. That's amazing. And you guys, after it happened, was there a publication? Was there any documentation of it? Or it was kind of just a weekend that passed and, and then it was over? Yeah, yeah. It was a three-day weekend happened and then it was over. I mean, we were so stupid. We didn't even think to video document it. <laughs> oh my you know, but one person, this guy Max Carmichael, from the Bay Area, he wrote a zine about it called My Weekend at Chance. And to me, that's like better than any video documentation <laughs> when the participants start to document it themselves. Right. Chris, something, this is, this is a little bit of a tangent, but something I've wanted to ask you is how, how does success feel these days? Because I remember when I first read I Love Dick, this was a while ago, I taught it when I uh, taught a class at UCLA um, before it became a TV show. And then suddenly it was everywhere. It felt really like mm-hmm. it was, it had entered the mainstream in a way that I felt upset about because I was protective of it um, selfishly. <laughs> but how did that feel? How does it feel now? Because so much of I Love Dick is also about female success and success in general. Yeah. I'm really happy that the book 
got a second and a third life. I mean, what more could you ask as a writer than for the book to be kind of reborn in another generation? Sometimes the writer is no longer alive, but since I am, I have to work out what my relation is to that. And it's strange because, you know, I wrote the book more than 20 years ago. I'm writing different kinds of books now. I certainly don't recant anything that I wrote in the book. I don't agree with every way, every every interpretation of the book or people who say that the book says this and this. I don't necessarily agree with that. But I really, you know, want to be as supportive as I can of the younger women who've picked up on it and have found something in the book that's important to them. I mean, there's a line in the book that says, um, what happens between women now is the most radical thing in the world because it's least described. So this is before social media, obviously. I mean, certain things are no longer true. Certain conditions don't hold anymore. But certainly, obviously, certain conditions do hold and are relevant today. Otherwise, people would not still be reading and talking about the book. You know, this question of privacy, that's changed a lot in the 20 years since the book was published. You know, I was criticized so harshly for invading this other person's privacy just by using his first name. There were no other identifying details, not his job, not the titles of his books. I changed his physical appearance. But just the fact that I used the same first name and it was based, people knew that it was based on a real character, that was considered so invasive. Um, But now, I mean, anybody can say anyone on social, uh, anything about anyone on social media and nobody blinks. Yeah, um, in a related way, Chris, there's a moment in, I believe it's an interview in the book that you do with um, Eddie Elkolti, and you talk about wanting to promote work that is feminist, but not, and I love this phrase and want to know more about it, not internet feminist. (laughs) So can you explain to us what internet feminism is, (laughs) and then also kind of more broadly, like... But I mean, there is a kind of lifestyle feminism, right? You know, a sort of Instagram. Well, I mean, that's not even true. I'm very supportive of the women who've done the Instagram projects about censored images on Instagram. I think Mm. that's really important. But no, I mean, obviously, semiotext has always had a political core to it. Right. So there began semiotext in the 70s. He grew up in France in the 50s and 60s from a, you know, Silvera is coming from a Marxist background, mm-hmm. as are many of the theorists that we publish. French theory, as Silvera has pointed out, really evolved out of French Marxism. So we've always had, you know, a political awareness and definitely a kind of radical left orientation. So things about, you know, self-empowerment, maybe that's not exactly, we're not going to go there. That's not our terrain so much. Yeah, I'm wondering in that sense, like, how do you encounter kind of feminist politics at this contemporary moment? Like, do you think that in some ways maybe we need like a retrenchment or a revisiting of those kind of core Marxist feminist principles? I don't know. I mean, it's like, if, if you know, if, if women are like, majority of the population, right? There are so many feminisms. Right. And, you know, you can't really talk about this, you know, a single feminism defining the moment. There really isn't, you know? 
there's, you know, there's this whole kind of, you know, self-care feminism about bath salts and you know, <laughs> other kinds of feminisms about electoral politics. And mm. there's another strain of feminism that I feel very engaged with right now, ecofeminism. I think that's mm. amazing. Jemaine Greer wrote this great thing, a kind of postscript to her work in a book in 2006, where she said how they all, she talked about how they all hated that term that got used on them in the 70s about women's lib, women's livers. Right. And they were so glad not to be called women's livers anymore. But then she realized maybe the whole notion of liberation had gone out of the concept as well. So that that was really moving to me. Um, the idea that feminism means a revisioning of the larger world and not just parody and not just self-empowerment, but assertion of different values, um, you know, hopefully more human values. Yes. You know, you write that the book kind of reemerged at a time where certain relationships towards patriarchy were shifting. It's so hard now to look at the news and see the kind of bearing down of things that seemed like they were changing. Um, and I feel like it's getting confusing with in terms of Me Too and everything. How do you, um, do you have hope for the future? Do you think that, you know, what, how do you think of, of progress in, in terms of overturning kind of a more patriarchal system? Well, amazing things are always happening. You know, they're not necessarily what you see when you look at the newspaper or even when you look online, but amazing things are always happening. And, you know, to order in order to not completely despair, I think we have to keep seeking them out and moving closer to them whenever possible. Can, we, can I ask, where do you seek extraordinary things personally? My friend Robert Dewhurst, who's in L.A. all the time, I'm actually not around that much, otherwise I would do this too, um, he has found a group that, um, that does a sweat lodge every Friday night, and it's run by this Native American guy, and then on Wednesday night, they have a subgroup from the sweat lodge that's learning Lakota songs, and for two hours they go to a room in somebody's house and they sing, you know, just a cappella. They sing Lakota songs. That seems pretty amazing. Yeah. There, I mean, there are, I, we can think of other projects that are sort of not just people in a room, but people doing a social project that has a bigger reach. There are always all these amazing projects going on. We just don't hear so much about them. I mean, you tell me, you're in L.A. more. What amazing projects are happening there now? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I will, actually, I will say. Yeah, well, here's just, another thing that excites me a lot. This this guy that I wrote, um, Alonzo, the the guy that I wrote about in social practices, the hay merchant who's become an art collector in Mexicali, Alonzo Elias. Um, he's become a very important art collector, and I would say that his taste is really better than the curators in Tijuana and Mexicali. And he's about to open a small museum of his collection and really just through this guy's own friendship with artists and his passion for this, he really has helped to establish kind of a new aesthetic, like this Northern Baja aesthetic that's different from the international art world, Mexico city aesthetic that's, you know, merges with SoCal, 
you know, that's mm. more kind of skate punk, that's more street. It's not naive, it's not outsider, it's totally connected, but it's a more kind of street, lower middle class aesthetic that includes tagging and other popular culture things, but at the same time is completely informed um, by international contemporary art. I think that's an amazing thing. Thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> Um, Chris, there was another another one of my favorite lines from uh, one of the interviews that made me actually think about, because um, much like Dea, my first encounter with your work was I Love Dick, which was pressed into my hands on a car ride to Palm Springs by a young woman that I spent the weekend with. Um, and I sounds romantic. It was, it was in a way, yeah. Oh, um, huh. uh, not maybe in a traditional way, which perhaps <laughs> is exactly what you would get out of I Love Dick. Um, but uh, the the quote that you gave, uh, and it's an interview that you did with with Eddie also, is that you're talking about resisting a cultural investment in narratives about people overcoming obstacles so that they can get to happiness. And one of the things that I love that you say is that happiness is overrated, right? So um, <laughs> can you explain a little bit um, what you mean by that and where else we might look for fulfilling lives outside of happiness, as well as who has access to happiness, which I feel is like the key question. Oh, God, yes, it's exhausting, isn't it? It's so much pressure. <laughs> it's hard to you be know, happy, kind of by the way. Happiness, happiness is a straitjacket. I think it's, it's just, you know, much more peaceful to admit that we're not going to be happy all the time. But, you know, this kind of quest for happiness and self-invention and self-fulfillment, it's, it, it's all part of the same thing that we're supposed to buy into that's so exhausting and so unsatisfying in the end. You know, it's like self-empowerment, feminism, and self-care. It's all just so exhausting in the end. And it uh, doesn't provide any validity to our feelings when we're not happy, which is not to say that we always have to be feeling tra traumatized yeah. or ashamed, but it doesn't oh. give space to boredom or I, mild I, interest. I, I absolutely agree with you. There's a Los Angeles artist, uh, Audrey Wallen, who's done a lot of great work on exactly that subject. She has the Sad Girl Project, mm. you know, and it's like reclaiming the right to be sad as a feminist act that you don't have to be kind of happy, 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 and well-adjusted and successful all the time. Oh, I love that. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's a really good artist, Audrey Rose Wallen. I think that's an excellent place to end with a recommendation of a sad girl artist. Of sadness um, in place of happiness. Sadness Making space for sadness. Yes. That's what we're all about. All right, Chris, we've really, really enjoyed speaking with you today. Well, thank you, Eric. Me too. And Medea and Kate, it was really good talking with you. It was great to talk to you. Thank Thanks. you so much, Chris. Okay, bye. We've been speaking with writer Chris Krauss about her new essay collection, Social Practices. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, 
Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 